You're listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, joining you from New York City. Uh, today, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Jim Schof, a senior fellow in the Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and an expert on U.S.-Japan relations and Northeast Asian security. Jim, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Uh, we have some uh, inf- uh, some news that's really in your wheelhouse to discuss today, so I'm glad that you can be here. Uh, so for listeners, what I'm referring to is a significant decision taken by the Japanese government, uh, really in the past couple of weeks, but confirmed by Japanese defense minister in public, Taro Kono, on Thursday. Uh, that pertains to Tokyo's plans concerning missile defense. Uh, specifically, the Japanese government has decided that it will ditch plans to deploy two Aegis Ashore land-based missile defense sites that were planned for deployment in Yamaguchi and Akita pre- prefectures in Japan and look at alternative options. Missile defense has been something Tokyo has been thinking about for more than two decades, really going back to the 1998 launch of the Taepodong-1 by North Korea. And uh, in 2017, a particularly notable year for North Korean qualitative advancements in missile capabilities, Tokyo took a decision to move ahead with Aegis Ashore, which is deployed in Europe currently uh, as part of the United States missile defense approach to um, to the European context. But uh, Jim, I'm hoping you can shed a little bit of light for our listeners on the significance of this decision, where the Japanese government might be coming from, and what happens next. So the question I'd like to really begin with is, first of all, what are we talking about here? What is Aegis Ashore, and what threats is it, def- uh, is it designed to protect against? Well, the, uh, as you mentioned, you know, Japan really emphasizes missile defense because they have a, a constitution that limits what they can do on the offensive side. And they are in a neighborhood, uh, particularly with North Korea, that's been improving its uh, missile attack capabilities combined with nuclear weapons, which really raises the stakes. And so Japan has invested for years in Aegis destroyers or uh, uh, ships that that have the uh, this radar system and, and missiles that can intercept North Korean missiles. And it's installed uh, these these Patriot batteries, these uh, kind of point missile defense batteries in certain spots around Tokyo that can deal with uh, missiles that are getting closer to Japan, but they really wanted something that could reach out much farther up into uh, outside the atmosphere and uh, try to hit missiles while they're uh, moving more slowly and um, and uh, and farther away. And so that they're really aimed at at this North Korean missile threat um, and uh, particularly worried about nuclear weapons. Uh, but they could be potentially useful in a uh, uh, in, in some kind of, you know, uh, dust up with, with China, at least. At least China thinks that, that the, the radars and the missiles could potentially uh, defend against uh, some of their offenses. But I, I think it's primarily North Korea. Yeah, and there's also, um, you know, I want to get to this a little bit later, but the, but the geopolitics are quite interesting, not only with China, but also with Russia. Uh, Russia, of course, had expressed concerns about Aegis Ashore in the European theater, citing the system as one of the reasons it perceived the United States to be in violation of some arms control obligations, including the now defunct INF Treaty. Uh, But also, uh, the Japanese government has been pursuing the resolution of the Northern Territories dispute with with Russia, and uh, this could potentially have some bearing on that. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that later. But uh, talking a little bit more about the technical uh, nature of this system, um, so the rationale that's been provided by Tarakono was that the in the course of conducting environmental assessments, the Japanese government uh, came to 
the realization, or not really a realization, something that's baked into the way these kinds of uh, interceptor missiles work, something like the standard missile 3 Block 2A, which is one of the more sophisticated interceptors that the U.S. and Japan have been co-developing for a number of years now. And one of the problems is that when you launch these interceptor missiles, uh, the stages of the missile uh, separate and they have a chance to fall over inhabited idea areas of Japan. Uh, so that creates some problems. Um, I find that a little bit of an interesting rationale because presumably when you're designing public policy and you're trying to limit damage in a conflict, you're going to be shooting these at nuclear-tipped North Korean missiles. So if in the course of taking out a nuclear-tipped missile, you have the possibility of a spent stage, uh, a fairly small stage compared to the damage that a nuclear device would do fall in, in an inhabited area, that seems like a tolerable risk. But apparently the Japanese government decided against that. So what's what's happening here? Is the technical rationale... Uh, does that tell us the entire story of, of why the Aegis Ashore decision was scrapped, at least in the technical sense? Or is there something else going on here that might be more explanatory, perhaps domestic politics? Yeah, you put your finger right on uh, the, the crux of the issue that the American side has a difficult time understanding, because their argument would be um, you, you can't get a, a, a missile up into beyond the atmosphere without a booster. You're, it, it's going to fall. Um, they'll do everything they can to, to have it fall in a particular drop zone that is safe. And they're we're working on various ways to improve that performance, but they can't issue a blanket guarantee. And, um, and exactly to that point that, you know, wouldn't you have rather have a, a little bit of a booster fall uh, on a residential area than an actual North Korean missile. Uh, but Japan is quirky that way. Um, they, as, as we've seen with the, relocation of the Marines down in uh, Okinawa and other types of programs and projects over the years. Uh, Japan does not like risk. Um, the politicians and, and their engagement with the public is not as sophisticated um, in the context of understanding by the public of what it takes to militarily defend uh, your country. And so the Americans always complain that the Japanese politicians are too timid or not willing to step up and, and make the hard decisions and kind of push these issues through. So when they were doing some of the early surveys of the um, sites in Japan, they told people, don't worry, there's no chance that uh, the booster pieces will fall uh, on, on your uh, towns. And, and it turned out that was not true. And so there was blowback from that. They mistakenly uh, did, they did some mistakes in the, in the surveys and the site selection. And when that came out, that uh, further undermined confidence in the Ministry of Defense's ability to do this. So they already had a bunch of kind of strikes against them. And I think they were hoping for, I, I think the Japan side was hoping that the Americans and the, the contractors would be able to kind of figure this out and get it down to uh, a virtually zero uh, chance of, of, of booster drop. And that wasn't going to happen without a lot more time and a lot more money. And so the, to get to your point about, you know, what's going on, the, the, the fact that Kono Taro is the defense minister is critical in all of this because of his personality. You know, he was kind of the, the efficiency minister and, and uh, uh, early, in an earlier stint and very focused on cost cutting uh, uh, at an event uh, we did in, in Japan a while back, you know, he was kind of joking about how much toilet paper he could buy for the cost of one F-35. Um, and, uh, you know, was it really worth buying all these different expensive things 
when he's got a ministry to run and there's a lot of, of uh, other things that are important too. So he's a unique personality to, to, to say enough is enough on this. It's two and a half years. We're, we're not getting any closer to implementing this. It's going to cost more. I don't want to do this anymore. And, and it was a very impulsive decision as far as we can tell. Now, the reason why others accepted this decision, I think, is because everybody else has a slightly different angle of how they might spin this decision. So some people who want to push a strike capability see this as an opportunity. Others who maybe preferred the THAAD uh, missile defense option uh, will, will push that. Others um, who maybe think this could undermine Kono's political career or that it might blow back on him uh, maybe want to feel like they're setting a trap. Uh, for him to um, to take the fall later when when this doesn't really work out because there are no other easy options. Um, there's uh, there, there's I think a wide range of of mm-hmm. motivations going on right now. Yeah, no, I thought I thought uh, you did a great job of just laying out some of the things that I wanted to get to. So the the decision I think opens up a few possibilities for Japan in terms of how it thinks about defensive strategies against North Korea. Missile defense is part of the picture, but uh, after 2017 and 2018, when Japan passed uh, its new uh, national defense program guidelines, a lot of observers were quite uh, surprised and interested to see that Tokyo had made a lot of difficult decisions in that document, uh, specifically on the acquisition of standoff conventional precision uh, capabilities, including systems like the Joint Air-to-Surface Standoff Missile, uh, JASM, uh, and JASM Extended Range, the Long Range Anti-Ship Missile, an Anti-Ship Variant of JASM, an American Cruise Missile, uh, the Norwegian-made Joint Strike Missile, the JSM, uh, plans to indigenously develop hypersonic capabilities, uh, plans to convert the Izumo class of helicopter destroyers to formally carry F-35Bs, a lot of this can play into a strategy that also involves missile defense. But as you just said, uh, Tokyo may find itself relying more on strike. And of course, I think that not only has implications for North Korea, but also if you're China and Russia and you begin to see Japan making all these investments in strike capabilities, that begins to factor a little bit into how you think about uh, your relationship with Tokyo as well. So uh, I know it's still really early and the Japanese government hasn't really given us a straight answer on uh, what happens next. But how do you how do you see this um, factoring into potentially the next national defense program guidelines in Japan if those are to be updated, or uh, Tokyo's ongoing plans to uh, incorporate these kinds of strike capabilities uh, into into its arsenal? Yeah, I, I, I I'm a little worried that this is going to um, not be an efficient or an effective conversation going forward within Japan. Um, I think there's a lot of good intentions. But it's too fractured right now. Um, I think some people who were involved in the decision to choose Aegis Ashore are, you know, people like uh, former Defense Minister Onodera and others uh, are going to push kind of to to get back to that and demonstrate why all the other options uh, don't work. Um, I mean, building more Aegis destroyers, they don't have enough sailors uh, to do that. And each one costs about $1.6 billion anyway. Uh, they're going to talk about mega floats and launch on remote. You know, maybe we can put this, t- take the radar, the Spy 7 radar we're already buying, put it up in the mountains and connect it to some floating barges with, with missiles on them. Uh, but then there's going to be all kinds of problems of how you protect that and um, how does how does that work and where do you put them? Uh, THAAD, uh Issues are, are going to be very difficult. You need at least five or six sites to get the same kind of coverage, and they've already had trouble 
finding uh, sites and, and local public relations. Um, the, and if they go to a THAAD extended range, that has the same booster problem that they're going to have to try to fix. And on strike, um, it's some strike capability makes a lot of sense, kind of a counter-strike threat that they would have a credible independent deterrent or an ability to kind of deter by punishment. They're not going to preemptively strike anybody else. Uh, the, the liberal Democrat, the ruling party's main partner, Komato, uh, is was caught off guard by this decision and is not uh, is 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 very much wedded to the peace constitution and uh, at a, and a defensive defense strategy. So politically, it's going to be very difficult to really ramp up um, the the a robust strike capability that is as uh, um, effective as 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 missile defense. Um, so I, it's I, I think they they need both offense and defense. Um, some enhancement of missile defense is probably going to be necessary based on the, the progress that North Korea uh, has made. Um, and they had, you know, back in 2017, they were sounding off alarms to tell people to go uh, take cover when some North Korean missiles were flying over uh, over Japan. If, if your strategy is just to, I don't think that's a viable political strategy going forward of, uh, of, of not taking the steps to, to be able to, to defend your uh, your people from those missiles. So they're going to have to to come up with a, a, a some combination of solutions. And um, all of them have difficulties like Aegis Ashore uh, did or does. So um, it's, it, this could drag on for a little while, even as they address other areas of, of their national security strategy that they want to uh, adapt. Yeah. And we've both talked about 2017 and the North Korean uh, missile launches that year as really the instigator for this decision. And of course, we're looking at the possibility that the North Koreans may soon return to the kind of testing that they did in 2017. And that I think would have some important effects as well on the domestic political context. So I did want to talk about the domestic politics, but we've actually covered that quite well. So maybe shifting gears a little, uh, let's talk a little bit about the international uh, geopolitics of this decision. Uh, China, Russia, certainly North Korea, all these countries factor in uh, the US-Japan alliance. Um, is certainly a part of this conversation, particularly with the Trump administration um, seeing Japan as potentially the next target for uh, acrimonious alliance cost-sharing talks, as we've seen with the South Koreans. Uh, so tell us a little bit about how this decision reverberates. Uh, maybe, the, maybe the place we can start is by talking about China and Russia. Sure. Um, yeah, China is, uh, on the one hand, uh, I think, relieved or or certainly content to see uh, Japan kind of struggle with this decision and uh, the potential friction that it would cause with the US within the US Japan Alliance uh, they were uh, both Russia and China um, you know see these kinds of uh, longer range uh, uh, bigger missile defense systems as potentially destabilizing and I think in their own view um, uh, I don't see it that way. I think these are very reasonable responses to the missile improvements that that other countries have made in the region. But um, but but they see it as as enabling kind of a defense, and then U.S. bases in the region then have more leeway or more freedom uh, to, to to operate uh, in in dealing with with their interests. Um, but on the other hand, if this drives Japan more toward a, a a, a more sophisticated and enhanced strike capability, uh, that's that's 
not as good for for China. So they're going to be watching this very carefully. They've already kind of weighed in with, uh, well, make sure you don't uh, do anything contrary to your constitution and your defensive defense strategy. We'll be watching. Uh, so they're already laying down a marker on that front. And um, and on the U.S. side, you know, this is going to be interesting. A lot of people expected the White House to be visibly angry or upset by this decision. We haven't really heard anything out of it. It's been a very calm response so far. Uh, and I think that's because it was a bit of a surprise. We're waiting to see how things actually shake out, that we might still be able to sell a lot of stuff to them in this process. Uh, but there's no doubt that, that this, I mean, the U.S. wants Japan to have a very reliable and effective missile defense system for Japan's safety and confidence to be a partner with us and for protecting U.S. bases. So, um, and, and in 2017, we had to send a lot of our Aegis ships to help supplement uh, Japan's capability uh, at that time. So we want them to get this right. And uh, this is now just one more thorn in the side of, of, um, of, the, of the dialogue. As you mentioned, host nation support discussions coming up. We have the F2 replacement program, and that's potential co-development program. I mean, if the SM3 missile, which is the the, the U.S.-Japan co-development program, um, is is deemed not to be worth buying <laughs> for for a Japanese system, um, how what does that say about our ability to to co-develop? Uh, you know, the, the next generation fighter for for Japan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, on the uh, on the China angle, that is that is an interesting. I mean, China loses either way if Japan develops strike capabilities or proceeds with Aegis Ashore. Um, but you know, something I just want to flag for our listeners is um, it's interesting to think about you know the the Thad dispute between South Korea and China, and the issue there wasn't the interceptors; it was the radar and the radar's mm. position specifically in South Korea. And what's interesting about the Aegis Ashore uh, systems that were going to be procured for Japan was that they actually included an improved radar, the long-range discrimination radar versus the SPY-6, which is deployed uh, in the Aegis Ashore sites in Poland and, and Romania. So I think the Chinese will actually be quite pleased to not see that radar potentially pop up on Japanese territory, given that they are concerned that this can degrade their um, nuclear second strike, whereas conventional strike in, in Asia is something I think the Chinese are perhaps a little bit more resigned to at this point, given given the long term trends in the area. So that's just that's just one thought I wanted to throw out there. Uh, could you yeah, no, that's a good yeah, point. Go um, and it's and it's it. That's why it's going to be worth seeing whether or not that particular radar sale goes through. Regardless, um, you know, there's one of the, the potential options is 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 going ahead with that and then just using it in a different way. But uh, I still don't totally understand all the technical aspects of these different options yet. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if I could get you to say something briefly about uh, the Russia angle here, because I think that's also uh, certainly been a component of uh, the Ages of Shore discussion in Japan. Yeah, that, that one I'm, I'm just personally a little less uh, familiar with. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Russia has complained about the program, but I almost feel like it was kind of just a knee-jerk uh, uh, habit um, mm -hmm. reaction and, and a a point of leverage that they felt they had in the overall bilateral dialogue, um, because I don't think Russian missiles per se are, are a big factor in, in any kind of strategy they have vis-a-vis -vis Japan or even U.S. bases in Japan. Um, but 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 I think they, you know, they just they just simply uh, benefit from this 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 idea of friction and and the, the the cost challenges that 
uh, Japan comes under that. I mean, North Korea is essentially forcing Japan to divert billions of dollars into a direction um, that is is less threatening in, in, in many ways, I think, to, to, to Russia. But I don't know. What, what do you think about, about the Russian perspective on this? Yeah, I mean, so um, the Russians, the way they've talked about Aegis Ashore in the context of uh, the European installations is that they worry that the the Mark 41 vertical launch systems, uh, which uh, three of which, um, three arrays of which are, are on each Aegis Ashore installation with 24 missile cells, they see those as potentially capable of hosting offensive capabilities. And it becomes a little bit more complicated because after the United States withdrew from the INF Treaty, one of the first things we did was in August 2019, we launched a conventional Tomahawk missile from a Mark 41 vertical launch system, which the Russians kind of pointed to and went, aha, we told you so, because that's what they were alleging the United States was doing uh, before the U.S. left the INF Treaty, which there's no evidence to support that that was ever the case. And there's actually significant differences in the software required to operate those kinds of systems. But they uh, they made that argument in the context of Japan as well, that these sites in Akita and Yamaguchi could somehow be used by the United States or Japan to host offensive capabilities, which is, mm. I think, quite ridiculous on the face for the reasons you talked about with Japan's uh, overall defense strategy and the fact that just Japan doesn't have the tomahawk, right? Um, but, I mean, this has been a, a talking point for a while. I remember in 2017, uh, when I was at the Shangri-La Dialogue, the Russian deputy defense minister was talking about THAAD, and uh, his position on THAAD was that Russia opposed it you know, for the flip reason from China, not the radar, but the actual interceptors, because the, he made the argument then that the THAAD interceptors in Korea could be used offensively. So uh, the Russians have a, a little bit of a different take on this from a technical perspective, um, but I think they'll certainly be pleased. Um, and I know that the Abe government's been sort of set on this idea of talking to Putin no matter what about the Northern Territories. And um that might be facilitated again by this decision. Of course, I think Japan's not going to get anywhere uh, with the Russians on that, but that's a separate discussion. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, I, I I totally agree with you there, and and you know this is probably only going to demonstrate, I would think, to the Americans how difficult it would be to uh, kind of pressure or get Japan to host uh, U.S. Uh, yeah. intermediate range missiles, you know, and somewhere on their territory. I mean, if they can't get um, missile defense that is co-developed with Japan, bought by Japan, deployed in a Yamaguchi prefecture where, uh, you know, where the prime minister's from uh, originally, then um, how are they going to get U.S. missiles targeted at, at countries far away uh, hosted there? Yeah, no, and Jim, that's actually something I'd love to have you back on the podcast to talk about perhaps at another time. Uh, but unfortunately, we are out of time for now. But but thanks a lot for joining me for this uh, fascinating discussion and for sharing your insights on uh, U.S.-Japan relations. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate it. It was, it was a lot of fun. For listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. 
DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.